Thank you for joining for this episode of the Techspective podcast. Uh, my guest is Igor Volovich. So, Igor, if you want to introduce yourself and a little bit about uh, you know your company and what you guys do, that would be a, a great start. Perfect. Thanks for having me on, Tony. My name is Igor Volovich. I'm the VP of Compliance Strategy here at Cumulus. Cumulus is a compliance automation company, and we're innovators in the in this space. We are bringing forth something that we call converged continuous compliance, which is a different way to do compliance. It's real time compliance. It's compliance for the modern enterprise it's not your granddaddy's compliance that's the way we think about it so basically instead okay. of looking always backwards we're looking forward and in the real time okay um let's actually let's actually start there a little bit yeah uh, because i mean there are other things i want to get to but let me start with you know uh, and and people who've known me or listened before already know this is my my philosophy but um uh I, I've always had this mentality of, you know, you can be compliant without being secure, but if you're secure, you're probably compliant. If you're if you're doing security right, you should be compliant. Um, but the reverse is not true, all the time. Um, so, within with that with that backdrop, how does Cumulus fit in? Because because again, it's like you know, there's 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 compliance from the perspective of I passed the audit, I checked the boxes. Yes, technically speaking, letter of the law, I am compliant. You know, and and when when the proverbial stuff hits the fan, I can pull out this audit and I can say, hey, I did what I was supposed to do. I was HIPAA compliant. I was PCI compliant. I was SOX compliant. I I, I did the compliance. Um, but I think a lot of companies, you know, basically only look at that as that it's just legal CYA. Like they're not looking at it like how can we be more secure. They're looking at it like, how can we check the boxes so that when we get in trouble, we can say we did the thing? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you called it, Tony, right? Uh, I think a lot of folks really look at compliance as just that. we got to pass compliance, quote unquote, you know, pass that audit, pass that assessment, check that big box, and then move on, and then forget about it till the next audit cycle comes around. So whatever that is, you know, six months, a year, two years, three years in the federal space, you know, the authorizations uh, to operate ATOs. They're on a triennial cycles. So you could be looking at things from three years ago. Now, if you're doing compliance management, that might seem fine. And it does pass muster under the current regulations for a lot of folks. Uh, but it certainly does not impress the bad guys, right? Because the bad guys don't care about your checkboxes. And I've been saying that for a long time. So I think you and I are very aligned on that point. I think a lot of the, the folks in the industry, they, they're very comfortable saying this. It's become kind of a mantra, right? You're compliant, but not secure. And you can be, and there's a difference there, right? What's the reason, right? So if we try to unpack that, first of all, let's look at compliance overall, right? Compliance has been, really, it hasn't changed. And I know it's going to be hard to hear, and some folks are going to probably take a double take on this, but it really hasn't changed since the times of Hammurabi, right? The code of Hammurabi was really the first written compliance code that we know of, right? Build a bad building. If it collapses, you get penalized. You have to pay people for, for damage, and then you also get the building collapsed onto you, right? So it was very draconian, obviously, but we're talking about times about, you know, 1750 BC. But really, not much has changed. Like, yes, we have fire codes. Yes, yes we have building codes. We have regulations. We have cybersecurity frameworks. We have this 853. But the reality of how we apply these models hasn't really changed. All we have is a deterrence model of compliance, meaning... We're going to give you some rules. If you don't comply with these rules, then we're going to find out and we're going to punish you and we'll let everybody else watch and we tell them that we punish you and then hopefully they'll create a deterrent effect. Now, if that actually worked in cybersecurity, we wouldn't have any breaches, but it doesn't, right? And we say, oh, well, you know, cybersecurity can't be perfect. We can't protect everything. Well, guess what? Neither does your compliance because the first thing you read when you look at a compliance report is 
the scope statement, the statement of scope. You're not looking at the entire environment and not none of these frameworks are meant to do that. No matter how big, I mean, look, NIST 853 is kind of the Bible of controls. You can't really apply it. You know, people say, make me compliant. Well, there's a lot of caveats to that, right? And one right. of them is scope. The other one is which systems are going to be fall within the compliance mandate. And and also, what's the cadence? Are you looking at them once every three years, one, and once every three months, once every you know year? It really depends. So there's a lot of caveats to how you do compliance. So when you say, you know, we're going to make ourselves compliant, what does that even mean, right? It's not a binary thing. We're compliant. And then we sit there and, and we say, well, like you said, you know, maybe it's just legal cover. We're not really looking to be secure. And I think there is a difference there. So you you hopefully hit what you aim at. If you aim to be compliant, maybe you'll get there. But again, with all those caveats in mind, you're looking at a subset of, the, of a subset of of controls and a subset of, uh, of a subset of goals from a security right. perspective, right? Even if you're successful there, you're still way far from actually being secure. And I think that's a big difference, folks, you don't understand. Right. Well, and to, to tie it in more with uh, kind of how you described Cumulus as well, it's important for it to be sort of continuous in real time. I mean, it's like it's like doing a vulnerability, you know, like you know, back in the day, like you, you, you do a vulnerability assessment. It's like, OK, great. You can tell me the state of vulnerabilities on that given day four months ago. Like it, it literally was it, that that was already outdated information an hour later. <laughs> and, you know, so it's like. And again, in, in that situation, it's like, well, if there was only a requirement to do quarterly vulnerability assessments, then, you know, I checked the box. I did it. Um, but it's like, OK, but it's not useful. It doesn't help you. Well, it certainly doesn't help you from a risk management perspective. So, it, again, it's what context are you in, right? If you're wearing the, the compliance audit hat, that's perfectly acceptable, right? Then you switch hats and you go to your security operations function, right? It's not acceptable, right? We would never accept to operate in the SOC from three-year-old data or three, even three-day-old data. We want data in real time now. And then a lot of people have made a lot of money bringing those kinds of solutions and platforms to market. Splunk comes to mind, right? That's one of the big ones. You know, Elasticsearch is the other one, right? A lot of folks invest a lot of time and effort to bring these kinds of solutions to market and implement them and integrate them into their environment because that's the value that they want. Full stop, then there's compliance. And in the compliance world, we seem to be completely content with operating from three-year-old data because nobody's really getting any value out of it. And that's that's exactly the point, right? Nobody thinks of compliance is a as a risk management function, right? It's purely a paper-based exercise. And frankly, again, because the model of that hasn't changed, like the reason we do compliance hasn't changed really, well, let's say for 4,000 years, right? It's a deterrent function, right? We have not really converged on the value of compliance efforts and the value of risk management efforts ever. And that's really kind of that rethinking that you have to do around compliance. And we actually just published a report called Rethinking Compliance. That's exactly what it talks about, is when you think about converging those two functions, first, it starts with a mindset, right? If you if you can get your mind there first and imagine a world where all of the efforts that you spend, all the expenditures that you make within the compliance space can actually have value within your risk management apparatus, because guess what? It's the same data. The only difference, the only difference is the time scale. So if you stop accepting this timescale, basically where you, you, all, you, all you're doing is looking in the rearview mirror at the control state from three years ago, three weeks ago, three days ago, three hours ago, right? Three hours ago might be acceptable, right? That actually might be fine. But three days ago, not useful. Three months ago, definitely. Three years ago, completely irrelevant, right? So from a paper, check the box perspective, totally fine. Risk management, it's not. And so there is this mind shift that has to happen. 
right? Enterprises and leadership has to, they have to think about compliance as a risk management function, but how do you do it, right? I think that's the next question that uh, we could probably talk about. Yes. Um, I also wanted to sort of add or, 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 or uh, one, of, one of the issues I, I, I think that comes up is um, uh, how, the, how the teams are integrated or who's responsible. Um, so like I look at, you know, I being in the cybersecurity space, I look at, I look at the, I'm, I'm focused on the cybersecurity elements of the compliance. Um, you know, and, and a lot of times, and I think there are people in cybersecurity who, who, who even work on, uh, achieving, you know, compliance who haven't taken the time to, to look at the full scope of PCI or SOX or, G, you know, GLBA mm -hmm. or whatever to understand that, like, there, the scope of many of those frameworks extends beyond cybersecurity. Like, there are other elements of it. It's like, it's not, it's not a purely cybersecurity function. It's just, that's our like, sort of like, that's the filter. That's the lens we're looking at it through. Um, but the, but the, the net result is within an organization, you know, it's not, they're not on the cybersecurity team and you know that, that that's a different team they're over here doing compliance um and you know so like getting everyone aligned getting everyone on the same page um and and to 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 the point you just made um a lot of times like even if we're, even if we're just talking about like uh asset inventory you know and i say okay well i can i can give you real-time asset inventory and i can tell you exactly what is on your environment and you know what it's running or whatever that information has value to multiple teams, That's right. but they're looking at it entirely differently. Mm -hmm. And so it's a different lens. Well, it's a different lens and, and it's just, a, and, and, and that's not, that's not good, better, and different. I think it's just important for, for an organization to understand that for an organization to say, you know, to not think, okay, well, I have this information. I gave this information to team A, team B, team, team C. So we're all on the same page. And I was like, well, no, cause they're all looking at it completely differently. Like you still have to come out some, some, somehow get together on, uh, uh, sort of normalizing the way you talk about it and, and, and making sure that, you know, when, when you talk about it and, and, you know, when team A talks to team C, like they're using the same words, but they're not meaning the same thing. That's right. Right. I mean, we will look at vulnerability management versus uh, compliance management, right? The objective is the same. It is to reduce risk, to mitigate risk to an acceptable level, which, of course, when you start having that conversation, you know, well, what is the acceptable level, which is synonymous with risk appetite, right? Who's going to have that conversation? It's not going to be a security guy. It's not going to be the ISSO that's looking at a particular set of controls within a portfolio of systems that they're assigned. It has to be somebody who's in charge of risk, right? And And usually... That means the company has to make a decision about what that risk appetite is acceptable. You know, how much resilience can they, uh, resilient loss they can sustain? You know, how long can these machines be down? How long can a conveyor not be operational, et cetera, et cetera. So that, these are business metrics, right? These are not about bits and bytes and, you know, attack patterns and, and different types of vulnerabilities. And I mean, these are very technical things, right? What we really wanted, wanted to, uh, to understand is it, it all, it's all about risk, right? And the answer about risk. So when you, you're looking for that common language, right? That, that the lingua franca of what we're trying to do here, it's really risk, right? So if you cannot talk about 
a way, a, you know, a risk mitigation value, a particular control, then what are we talking about, right? Then we're just talking about implementation view, right? and then we're talking about technology, right? And then it becomes an exercise in deploying more and more technology. And that's why you see so much more being spent every year on cybersecurity technology, and yet the breaches keep going up, right? Because we don't have a consistent model for applying this technology in ways that actually reduces risk, because nobody's really looking about uh, looking at risk. Risk is a separate function. And frequently, when you look at the corporate environment, the risk function it's frequently not very technical at all, right? These are risk analysts that typically talk about the business. They talk about things like resiliency. They talk about things like BCDR, right? Business continuity, disaster recovery. These are, you know, and most of these are policy kind of administrative type controls. They are not technical controls, right? So they don't have a direct view into the actual technical controls that actually are providing the function of securing the environment, right? So there is that disconnect, right? And that's really what we're talking about. There's this recognition that has to happen that to your point, it's all the same data, right? There is no security data. There's no compliance data. There's no risk data. There is no you know operations data. It's all data, right? And by and large, it talks about the same kinds of systems, the same kinds of functions. It's a different perspective, different lens. So how do you converge back, right? How do you actually create that one unified view of risk for your environment? And we know, like back in the day, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we tried to do that as an industry with things like GRC, right? Governance Risk and Compliance Platforms. They were incredibly cumbersome. They were very difficult to implement. They were very expensive. They took a lot of care and feeding to really even get the data into them. And in the end, really what they did is they tried to marginally improve the efficiencies around the same old paper-based processes, right? And it's it's kind of what I've come to call opinion farming at scale. When you look at a an average risk management and compliance management and, and security management program, and you try to ask the very basic question, two buckets. Bucket one, how much of what you think you know about your environment is actually informed by data? versus how much of it is informed by opinion. Objective, subjective, right? That's a very basic question to ask. And most people kind of look at that and go, well, it's all data, right? Well, look, take it back to where it came from, right? And how many hands have been on that data before it wound up being a pixel on some dashboard that you're presenting to your board, right? That's a thing to ask. And if you can do that, and look, you don't have to do it across the entire thing, but if you can do a sampling run and kind of figure out, you know, for, for a set of controls, for a set of systems, uh, for a set of business divisions, how much of what? Well, what is that ratio? Right, opinion versus fact uh, versus fact, data versus somebody's basically subjective opinion. Right. So it's and it's hard to do, but you have to do it. Right. And that's I think that's step one. Well, I was going to say even you know I, I, I've I've written a number of reports based on survey data, and you know it, it, even even data you know, even if I say this data is true like this is you know this is this is factual data we've got we've collected this data this is the data there's still a hundred ways to spin it i can still look at the data and if you know if if 60 percent are doing one thing and 40 percent are doing the other it's like well it depends on which side do i want to focus on focus on do i want to say hey this is great 60 percent are doing this or do i want to say well nearly 50 percent are doing you know it's all in in in, in how you frame it um, when it comes to the data, you know, and, and that's a little bit of a side thing, but it just, it just underscores the challenge. I think that even if I say, okay, well, we've all got the same data and, and, and we can agree on that as the source of truth, the interpretation of that truth is still variable. Well, that's, and I think that's a great point, right? Uh, the, the idea that you're now relying on this data 
to make decisions. You treat it as data. You basically, I mean, you, you, uh, uh, one uh, reference point that I like to make is the film, The Big Short, about the 20, 2008 uh, mortgage crisis, right? You know, we had people basically rolling up all these subprime mortgages until, you know, you, you stack them high enough and now they're collateralized assets, right? So, you know, debt became asset and it's this transmogrification of, of one thing into another. And so this is kind of, I think, what we look at. We look at the these opinion farming at scale that we do across security and risk management, certainly compliance management. You know, somebody looking at the control, they say, okay, well, this is a functional control and it's efficiently working, it's operating, and we say it's compliant, right? And you take that, you scale that across thousands of systems, thousands of controls, hundreds of frameworks, or at least dozens of frameworks that are mostly applicable to, to a large uh, swath of the environments. And then you've got this basically opinion farming at scale. Now you stack it up high and you go, well, that's data now. But, you know, a thousand opinions do not become data. Now, statistics apply, right? And certainly statistical sampling and all these kinds of things that we do normally in audits and assessments, representative sampling, as long as it's truly statistically sound. The problem is we don't have that kind of consistency, right? We'll look at a control. We say, okay, that's my opinion. Some analyst looks at it. They escalate it. It gets changed. They escalate it again. It gets changed again. And then they keep massaging that data, massaging that data until it gives you the, the opinion that you want, right? It gives you the picture that you want. Then here comes the auditor. And now you have a negotiation. And I've been, I mean, I'm still a certified auditor. I've been in those rooms, right? I've been on those sides of that table. I've been the guy doing the audit. I've been the guy responding to the audit. I've been the guy helping to get an environment to be auditable, right? And, and also walking in and doing the remediation after a, a set of gap findings. It's it's always a negotiation, right? It's always, it's It's never solid, right? So what we're trying to do is, I think the philosophy that I'm driven by is how do we create more consistency, more believability, more credibility, and more accountability? Right, taking it back to the original question of accountability of executives, I think that's that's really where for me that falls under. Right, that's the umbrella where it goes under. It's accountability. It's about credibility. Can you traceably, credibly present a picture of risk in your environment based on data, not opinion? Right, and if you start unpacking it and you start asking that basic question, well, where did it come from? Did it come from a system? Did it come from a person? And if it came from a system, how many people have looked at it? How many people have massaged it before it actually wound up on that dashboard? That's the kind of question I want to ask. And I know today, the way we do compliance, mostly, right, in most environments, the way compliance regulators look at it, the way compliance auditors look at it, they don't ask those kinds of questions. They get the data they get, even though it's basically opinions rolled into, into a lot of a lot of sacks, right? Um, and they say, well, that's good enough, right? They accept it, and then somebody has to sign off on it. And so... When I look at it from an accountability perspective, especially now we have criminal accountability and folks are coming out to FTC consent decrees and things like that, um, I'd be really, really worried if I had the CISO hat officially now, right? If I was in a chief risk officer position, if I was a chief compliance officer, I would be really thinking hard about these kinds of things because the regulators are no longer accepting just that one checkbox at the end of the quarter, at the end of the year. They really want to know. They want to unpack it. They want to figure out, you know, they want to trace it down to a level of a single control sometimes, especially after a breach. And as breaches happen more and more, I don't know how anybody sits there, signs off on those controls and not worry about their own personal liability. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, yeah, we, you know, we talked a little bit right, you know, right before we started recording about this, you know, with, you know, you had the situation with the, the, uh, the FTC and the CEO of Drizzly. He had the situation with uh, Joe Sullivan, uh, former CISO at uh, Uber, um, mm -hmm. being you know being found criminally liable, um, and you know I, I think that you know that that should make executives pause. I mean, I mean it it, it like I I I don't want to get into a you know a, a, a culture where 
we just throw the executives under the bus, you know, sort of like the, uh, the, I mean, that's kind of always been the role of the CISO, but it's, it's a, it, you know, it reminds me of like a, you know, any professional sports team. If things are going bad, you fire the coach. Um, then, you know, you, you don't, you don't need to invest any time in actually determining the root cause of why things are going bad. You just, you fire the coach, you move on. Um, and I feel like that's, you know, historically kind of been the role of the CISO when it comes to security is like, like, well, we don't know what happened. We don't know what's going on. We're just going to fire the CISO and get a new one. And then, you know, that, that'll, that'll do it. Um, it at least creates the facade of, of having done something. Um, I think we're getting beyond that now, right? I, I think we're actually seeing more credible type of enforcement. FTC is definitely interested in that. SEC is definitely interested in that. They're trying to, I mean, SEC has had the cybersecurity guidelines for a long time. FTC just released uh, the kind of the repositioning of what they call the uh, uh, cyber safeguards that traditionally used to be applicable to basically the GLBA crowd, you know, the banks, the financials, the, the usual suspects, uh, mortgage lenders, mortgage brokers. And now they're extending it to folks like car dealers, which, you know, go, what do they have to do with it, right? They sell cars. Well, they actually, they originate auto loans. And so now that we have, you know, this huge contingent of folks who, who carry auto debt, and we've always had one, but now it's getting even more and more. And now you have things like subprime auto loans. So there's a lot of that kind of this pool of risk that they're trying to manage here uh, from a consumer spending perspective. Um, the, the enforcement hammer is coming down harder and harder, and they're becoming a lot more precise with how they go after these things. So it's not just, hey, let's go go after somebody and just you know hammer the hammer on them and and make them look like they're the responsible party. They actually want to know how things happen, right? And so when you see things like the FTC consent decree against the former Drizzly CEO, you know, he wasn't a CISO. That's a critical thing to understand here. For the right. first time, they're actually holding a CEO of a company accountable for a breach. And the reason they're holding him accountable, and actually, and like, let's unpack for a second what that consent decree means. It's unique in that they're attaching it not to the company, but to the person himself. So no matter where he goes after, any kind of company he goes to run, if it's got more than 25,000 customer records, or I think, yeah, I think it's 25,000, they have to apply a cybersecurity program and the FTC has to check what kind of program it is, right? So that goes with him for wherever he goes for the next, I think, five to 10 years. So... That's unique. That's novel. That's an interesting new approach. Uh, but why are they doing it? Because, well, they lied about the state of their cybersecurity program. They actually lied about how well they were running things. And then they got breached. And so, and then they lied about it again. So that's what the FTC is really enforcing. It's, about, it's not so much, hey, you got breached, you got to be responsible. If you've been misrepresenting the state of your controls, and then you got breached, that's the critical thing to understand. And so the problem is folks who are now representing the state of their security controls how can they represent it? Because they don't know. And we can we can talk about why that, that's a problem. I think there is a lot of uh, kind of a fog of war that obscures the uh, you know the, the visibility to risk within most enterprise environments. Yeah. And I think folks who are managing them, they have to be they, they have to be cognizant of that. There's a lot of risk there. Well, I was gonna say I, I, I feel like there is a uh, there, there's a spectrum there of there are there are definitely situations where the C-suite knows damn well what's going on. They know that they're trying to lie. You know they're lying. They know they're covering something up. Um, but I also think there's a lot of situations where, from a compliance perspective, a security perspective, people are rubber stamping things wherever. Like they're 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 signing off on things they don't even understand. They're not asking the right questions. They don't really care. They feel like you know, again, it goes back to the checkbox mentality. You know, it's like okay, well, you guys did a thing. I'm supposed to sign it. So you know, here I've signed it. And, you know, let's move on. Um, and that's where I think you know, 
you know, we're starting to see some of the stuff where it's coming back and they're saying, okay, well, there's a reason we asked you to be compliant. There's a reason we had the audit. There's a reason we asked you to sign off certifying that audit. Now that there's been an issue, yeah, we're going to come back and ask you, why did you certify this? <laughs> you know, and if you can't answer that question, you're going to get in trouble. Well, that's, and I think that's the point, right? So not only uh, are the regulators asking to see that you keep certifying controls, they actually will hold you accountable if you certify controls that are not there. And I think that's that's the point, right? How do folks actually understand what it is they're signing for? And this idea, like this air of plausible deniability, like this is too complex. I didn't understand what I was signing for. Well, that's not how Sarbanes-Oxley works. If you're signing off, you're responsible. You, you know, look at section 302, look at section 906. These are the things that actually have criminal penalties. Like they, we've had this for a long time. We, I mean, we've we've had the restatement of certain things. Some things have got adjusted, but the criminal penalties have not changed. Like this is the point. You, if you certify controls that are not there, and then you, especially if you get breached. I mean, how do we know when things are actually? Uh, I mean, there's two principal ways how regulators find out that something is misrepresented. One, you have a breach that shows the controls weren't there, and the other one is a whistleblower. And we saw that with Rocket Dyn Aerojet. Um, they, you know, this was a federal contractor. Uh, they put up missiles in the air, right? I mean, they, they were doing work for the DOD and um, the rockets flew, the fuel got burned, they got paid. And then here comes a whistleblower that says, look, sir, you, you actually been misrepresenting the state of your cybersecurity controls on federal contracts, on DOD contracts. And that's illegal. That's a violation of the False Claims Act. And so uh, there is a new uh, regime actually incentivizing specifically cyber whistleblowing in the private sector. The regulators want to know. And so this is kind of the safety valve for a lot of this concealment, a lot of this kind of plausible deniability regime that's been sort of governing the a lot of the enterprises and their views on compliance. You know, if we don't know, we don't have to do anything about it. Well, guess what? Here comes a whistleblower and they will blow the whistle. And that's exactly what happened in that particular case. So hiding, playing hide and seek with your security program, that that's that's not a, a path forward. And the regulators are basically saying, no, we're not going to let you get away with it. Well, yeah, I think that the... Um... The other thing that probably still needs to be addressed on some level is like there, there, there are things that happen like, like, like let's say, you know, uh, there, and I can't come up with a, a, a specific example right now, but like, you know, where, where the government might create a, a, a regulation and they say, well, you know, like if you, if you're, if you're in violation of this, uh, you know, we're going to, it's going to cost you, you know, a thousand dollars a day or whatever as, as a company. And, you know, if you're, Google or Apple or whatever, you go, eh, that's fine. That's a, that, that, that's a cost of doing business. You know, we'll just keep violating it and pay the thousand dollars a day. That's and we can, we can do that. Um, I, I feel you know, the, the same thing applies to a lot of executive accountability, in my opinion. Like it's like, it, it has to be painful enough. Now, when you get into criminal liability, that's painful enough. But when, you know, but a lot of times it's like, you know, similar to a to to firing a, a a football coach or a baseball coach or whatever, it's like these guys walk away with insane golden parachutes, insane. And it's like, well, where's my incentive to do the right thing, or where's my incentive to even give a shit if if I know that when you fire me, I walk away with two hundred million dollars, whether you like it or not. Right. So I, I think what we'll actually wind up seeing is, is something that the SEC has done for a long time. So if you have uh, if you operate um, a um, an illegal kind of an operation, an operation where you're doing a lot of malfeasance, you know, where you're, you're acting as I think the, the legal term is an unfaithful servant. You know, that's something that's used in the financial management uh, spheres. Um, 
then you actually are required to what they call disgorge ill-gotten gains, right? So you actually, that those golden parachutes, they're, they're good for nothing, right? Because you actually have to pay back. Um, because ultimately what you're doing is you're stealing from the shareholders, right? Because that's where that money comes from. So the responsibility is to the shareholders, right? And so the SEC will step in and NFTC will step in and will actually uh, pull that. Now, we, we've seen a lot of that happen with SEC enforcement, like kind of the classic traditional, you know, financial fraud and, and Ponzi schemes and things like that. Uh, you know, we certainly saw it in the crypto space where the FTC and the FCC have stepped in and, and reclassified some of the kind of tokens, you know, token offerings that were actually unregistered securities. So they'll step in and do that kind of traditional SEC type enforcement, and they will pull kind of the pull the rug from one of these folks, if they, even if they have that golden parachute that we talk about. Uh, but I think I'd like to see uh, more enforcement around specifically, you know, maybe some regulation created around that, the idea of, you know, if you lie, uh, if you act in, in a malicious manner to conceal cybersecurity breaches or kind of what happened with Uber or uh, conceal noncompliance, and then you get exposed either by a breach or by a whistleblower, then it may invalidate some of that contractual language on a golden parachute. Like I mean, maybe maybe sense. something like that. Basically defang this idea right. that you can actually get away with it and get paid for it. Right. I mean, it, it, I mean, this is I, I do not want to derail this into into discussing the current state of Twitter at all. Uh, and this is pure speculation. But there was there was a. Uh, uh, I saw suggestions that when 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 Elon came into Twitter and he you know fired the whole C-suite, um, that and, and I have not seen any further discussion on this, so I don't know if there if the speculation has been you know investigated any further, if it's true or if it's not, but he fired them for cause. Like he basically he came in and he said, look, you know I you know, I I think you guys did this stuff wrong. I'm firing you for cause. And the speculation was, yeah, he did that because it gets out of it gets him out of the golden parachute. Like if if, if they're fired for cause, then he doesn't have to pay out on all all of the you know uh, the perks and bonuses that were were listed in their contract. Um, and you know, it, you know the, the the truth is maybe somewhere in the middle. But um, and again, without even without even saying which side of that argument I would I would be on, I just think that. That sort of thing, like you just mentioned, would be it would be good. Like just just having the verbiage in a contract, you know, this is hey, great. You know, I, I'm hiring you to be the CEO, and you know, I'm going to give you all these stock options. I'm going to give you these perks, and when you walk away, we're going to you know, we're, we're, you, know you get you, you know free Ferraris for life, um, you know, whatever. But hey, if uh, the reason that you're walking away is that uh, you know you 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 lied. <laughs> Or you know, or the, you know, you 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 did something that materially materially impacted the company. Then uh, yeah, all bets are off. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so you know, take this with a grain of salt. But uh, based on my experience, I mean, there are always fraud clauses included in executive compensation packages. So if you actually act act in a fraudulent manner, and you know, especially if it's to the detriment of the shareholder value, and and it impacts the company from a legal perspective or a regulatory perspective, and you acted with you know malicious negligence, or or you know, you you should have known better, right? Uh, and uh, and it's proven to be fraud. If it's criminal activity, then you definitely get uh, get to suffer the consequences. I don't think you get to walk away with a with a golden parachute. But again, you know, I I think from a regulatory perspective or regulatory enforcement perspective, uh, you know, you kind of want more consistency around that. So it's not so much based uh, around the specific company's uh, views on that, but really more across the entire market. You know, what we want we want to create a better climate, a more predictable climate, because really, it's in the end, it's all about risk. And uh, frankly, we haven't seen the marketplace become sophisticated enough, and certainly neither the individual individual investors, not even the institutional investors, have been able to effectively price the cost of cybersecurity into the price of stock.
you know, they, they, we've seen, I mean, TJX is a classic example. Everybody kind of was waiting around for that stock to tank and, right. and for people not to show up. But guess what? That risk is actually offloaded. So when you look at it from a risk perspective, when you think about the consumer, you know, holding that credit card in their hand, there's no impact to them, right? They're not beholden, you know, for whatever, well, you know, the attack happens. They're not on the hook, right? It's actually the merchant, that, not that, in the bank. That's an issue with, on, on multiple levels. Like, you know, like, like I was saying with the, you know, with the, you know, government fines or whatever, uh, you know, for some things. Um, but that's true. Like even, you know, there, there's the, the very, you know, infamous notorious case, uh, you know, a few decades back where, uh, I don't remember which vehicle it was, but you know, where, you know, General Motors had the, the, the cars that would, you know, blow up on impact because of the, you know, and, and, and then they found out they had a memo where like they, they, they literally had done like a cost benefit analysis on which is cheaper, fixing the cars or paying death benefits in, in lawsuits. And That's that was I mean. a business decision they made. It was a business decision to say, well, we'll, we'll let people die. That's actually cheaper. Yeah. Um, and That's what made Ralph Nader famous. Yeah, it was the book, the book he wrote on safe at any speed. And, and that was kind of what, what led to a lot of the regulation and the vehicle safety. Absolutely. Uh, so look, I mean, regulation has its place. And you know, now, especially with the FTX collapse, everybody's screaming for more regulation. And you know, there's also a conspiracy theory that the reason FTX actually existed was to create more regulation around crypto and, and put more government control around that. So we'll leave that for the other podcasts. Right? There's plenty of that content out there. We don't need to derail the conversation towards that. But, but look, I had regulation... Not, I had not heard the FTX as false flag uh, uh, conspiracy. I guess we, we operate in slightly different circles, my friend. But uh, yeah, it's it's I've seen that floated out there. But look, regulation has its place. Deterrence has its has its place. Um, deterrence has to be obviously severe enough to create a deterrent effect. And I, to your point, right? You know, paying those fines. Look, I've been in situations where I've been called in. Uh, where companies had been paying fines for a long time. And then they said, look, you know, we're kind of getting tired of that. And the regulators are coming in and saying, we're not going to let you just buy your way out of it. You're going to have to actually build a real security program that is truly secure, truly compliant, where you can demonstrate that to us in a consistent manner, in a continuous manner. And we're, I mean, we're happy to accept the fines, but at the end, some sometime some you get to a point where you basically say, look, where's the credibility in this? We're just basically now we're just collecting this and letting you operate. So that, because ultimately it's not about the relationship between you and the regulator. The relationship, the regulator is there to enforce the relationship between you and the and the market, right? So that's really the point. And again, it's about managing risk, whether you have a consumer component or if you manage it, if you're doing B2B, you know, at, at some point, somebody's going to get hurt. And that's exactly what we're trying to resolve here. And so that's the regulator's job. And so uh, I think they're moving definitely far away from this idea of just kind of taking the fines and letting people to, get, to, to treat compliance as a cost of doing business or rather non-compliance as a cost of doing business. And we see these fines. I mean, they're, they're now where they're reaching into the billions of dollars, right? We've definitely seen in the EU, the European Commission, it's not shy, right? The EU is not afraid to actually enforce stuff. I, I feel like, you know, we we create things where the, the, you know, they're very slap on the wrist uh, type penalties and, you know, yeah, you, you 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 care, but not enough. But right. when uh, but but the EU uh, apparently does not mess around. No, I mean, look, three hundred seventy-five million dollars for a privacy violation—that hurts. You know, half a billion dollars—that hurts. I mean, I don't care what size the company oh. you are. It's it, it's it's not a rounding error. It's only it's only uh, partially related, but I I, I feel like uh, you know when it comes to things like the fines, it would it would make sense to do them more. Uh, proportionally like so like you know i've always seen this thing going around that like in finland when you get a speeding ticket it's based on your income and i'm like that makes perfect sense because i'm I, i'm here i'm I'm here outside of wood uh outside of houston in the, in the woodlands texas it's an affluent area 
the guys driving the the Ferraris don't care <laughs> if you give them a speeding ticket. Like the like actually a, a friend of my wife's uh, who has uh, I mean they've got. I don't know how much money this guy's got, but he's got like McLarens and, and Ferrari. Like he's got the whole collection. Um, he literally has a budget. Like it's, in, it's a line item in his budget that says, you know, like this is my speeding ticket budget or whatever. Like, like he's, he's prepared for that. Um, whereas somebody else, you know, somebody who's driving a, you know, 1995, you know, Nissan or whatever, that speeding ticket could cripple them, you know? So it's like, it it, sh- it should be relative and you know so yes if if you know mom and pop dry cleaner operation you know violates compliance that fine should be very different than if google violates it well i mean look you can have a, a mom and pop laundromat um still get hit for you know with a credit card skimmer right or something like that or you know and that and then guess what for a year, somebody's collecting all the credit cards they get and swipe there, right? Or they just pilfer their entire database and they'll go do some identity fraud, right? So I, I think it should be based on a couple of things. And I think one is what you said. I think proportional to the income is is right. And it's probably a portion of it. And the other half is, well, what's the what's the actual impact, right? You know, who was actually hurt and at what level? And I think that that has to be taken into account. And it's certainly part of the sentencing guidelines at the federal level and the state level. That is certainly taken into account. So when you see somebody actually do malfeasance and 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 do fraud, that's what winds up happening. You do have the impact statement, and that's part of the kind of part, part of how we enforce. But from a regulatory perspective, when you, especially when in the civil space, I mean, I, I think the regulators are are struggling to find their footing in this kind of new, the the new world that we live in. You know, it's very complex. There's a lot of different frameworks. There's a lot of different ways that that things can go wrong. And and ultimately, what are they focusing on? They're focusing on the executives. They're focusing on the leadership. Uh, they're focusing on the statutory authority within these companies that is responsible for these things. And I think, uh, you know, the leadership echelon should come. And if they're not becoming cognizant of this, they should, right? This is the big thing on their agenda. It should be. Right. Um, they're in the line of fire. They're personally accountable. They're personally responsible, up to and including criminal penalties. I mean, you look at Sarbanes-Oxley, 20 years, right? Uh, and we've seen people go to jail under Sarbanes-Oxley. So that's that's not uh, that's nothing new. What is new is that they're extending the sphere of cybersecurity into that within that compliance uh, mandate, right? They're thinking about cybersecurity as a core component, an integral component of their enforcement mandate. And FTC is now stepping into the breach a lot more, yeah. right? Um, and and they're enforcing. So I think folks need to be cognizant of this. And that, they also need to understand they don't know what they don't know about right. the state of their environment. That's the big thing. It, it, well, that is the big thing. And I, and I think the, 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 the key to what you said is the enforcing, because I, I'm sure there are some, 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 some differences and things you know, change, change over time. But going back to what we talked about earlier, you know, like if, when, you, when you do a compliance audit, you know, for whatever compliance framework you're talking about, it's like, you know, Someone's responsible for making sure that, you know, all the things are, are you know, all the controls are in place. Someone else comes in and does the audit. And, you know, when it gets to the the C-suite desk and they sign off on it, that, you know, that was supposed to mean something. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, for a lot of organizations, like I said earlier, it historically hasn't. You know, it's kind of like a rubber stamp, like, the, you know, the, they don't even know what they're looking at necessarily. Um, and I think that's kind of the key is, is we've gotten to a point where we're saying, look, don't sign that. <laughs> if you don't know what you're signing, don't sign that because we will come back and hold you accountable. <clears throat> 
Well, how do you know what you believe, right? So if, if you believe that your program is actually functioning correctly, that you have credibility across the entire life cycle, and, and let's even focus on the subset of security, which is compliance, right? If we even look at the compliance alone, how do you know what you know, right? How do you know that these controls are actually reporting correctly? How do you know that this, this is fact and not opinion? Like, have you made that determination, right? And if you, and I think a lot of folks, when, when you pose that question to them, they simply don't know. And I'm going to borrow a quote from David Mamet. Whenever there is any doubt, there is no doubt. And, and if you have any doubt about the state of your security controls and the overall posture of your organization, how do you sign off on, on these statements quarterly, annually, whatever it happens to be, right? You, you have to, you have to wonder. And I think the, the real answer is you have to maintain a level of awareness observability. You have to make sure that your program is actually capable of achieving an acceptable level of risk observability to a level of single control, single system, single unit. And I don't think most companies today are able to answer that question in the positive. I don't think they're comfortable answering this. And so they've been kind of playing hide and seek with this, you know, hoping for that plausible deniability. But guess what? That regime is over. You're accountable and you're expected to know exactly what you're signing off on. You know, you don't get to come back a year later after a big breach, you know, with hundreds of millions of, of records breached and, and folks impacted, right? And shareholder value impacted and say, well, you know, I did sign off on it, but I wasn't really sure. Well, if you're not sure, then don't sign off. Now, for a lot of people, it's going to stop the business, right? When you look at things within the defense industrial base, good example, CMMC, right? Um, that's a big thing. CMMC 2.0 is coming in. If you cannot show compliance, you can't even bid on the contract. Right. By 2025, October 2025, every federal contract within the DOD space is going to be within the scope of CMMC 2.0 compliance. So that's really going to be impacting the profit and loss. Right. This is real. It's no longer just, well, we got to do this. We got to check this box. We got to rubber stamp this thing. If you can't do it and do it with credibility, because guess what? There's going to be whistleblowers. There's going to be breaches and the regulars are going to be watching. Right. So they will want to preclude you from bidding on future contracts. So it's becoming table stakes. Compliance is no longer just a thing you have to do. It's a thing you have to do well, with a lot of integrity, a lot of credibility, a lot of accountability. Well, you know, and, and to your, you know, you've made the point a number of times about, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, in, in the last few years, there was, a, there was a huge push, you know, first it was kind of just a couple companies who were like, you know, talking about comprehensive visibility and, you know, there were new tools that came out to say, look, you know, you're only seeing this and you're only seeing this, but, you know, our tool is going to let you see everything. And I actually asked a question of a vendor one time where I was like, okay, but how do you know? Like, that's a bold statement. Like, like you're helping me see more that, 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 that's quantifiable. I, I can say, look, this is what I saw before I installed your tool. Now I can see all of this stuff, but I don't know what's on the other side of that. Um, you know, it's like, there, there could still be a whole bunch of stuff missing. We don't know. All we know is that you found more stuff than I had before. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and really, I mean, gets, gets, gets off into a uh, philosophical discussion, but there isn't an answer to that. You can't know. Well, I mean, it, it's a, it's the old tired phrase, right? You don't know what you don't know, right? That's the problem. And, and so, you can't prove, and you can't, and you can't prove it. You're like, you can't prove a negative, right? Right. Well, that's that's the problem, right? So, well, guess who's proving it every day? It's the bad guys, right? Because they don't they're not constrained by any of this. And I love the quote from uh, Jen Easterly, the director of CISA, uh, who who said, uh, "Our adversaries are unbounded by bureaucracy, and unconstrained by by organizational uh, misalignment." Right? They they're hacking in right now. They don't care which department. They don't care that you have a risk department, security department, you know, operations department, SOC, NOC, whatever you call it. They don't care about any of that. They're just breaking in. They want the data. They want to exfiltrate it. They want to encrypt it. They want to hold you up for ransom. 
that's that's the reality, right? So this is kind of the ultimate test of your defenses is is you know the actual attackers, and you can do pen testing and you can do attack surface management and you can automate a lot of this stuff and you can really va validate your controls. I mean, somebody asked me a long time ago, but like, how do I know if my controls are actually working? Well, you validate them, you test them. That's how you know, right? You don't wait for and hopefully you can get ahead of the bad guys testing them for you in the most unpleasant way, right? Do it yourself. Uh, but the other thing is. And, and I think it's a perfect question that you're asking is, how do I know that my tools are actually telling me the truth, right? And you definitely want to rely more on fact, not opinion, meaning technical controls, not somebody interpreting what these controls are saying. So as, as much as you can eliminate the human element from these life cycles, the better, right? You really want the human element uh, used for what it needs to be used, right? Making decisions, interpreting data, not so much massaging it, right? So you want to take the massaging out. You want to focus on actually analysis and response and mitigation, right? These are the decisions that need to be made. You know, saying unit A versus unit B, uh, we're going to prioritize controls there because that is where most of our money is made. You know, no security tool is going to tell you that, right? So you need that human decision-making ability. But you want to inform it with the right, with the right data. That data is going to come from some kind of a control. So now you're asking, well, I need a meta metric. I need to know if the controls are actually functioning correctly, if they are telling me the data that I need to hear in the way that I can trust. So that's where the compliance comes in, right? The right kind of compliance can actually validate that these controls are operating, that they're deployed correctly, that they're functioning the way they're intended to function, right? And this tells you about the health of your program. So I think there's two things that folks need to really think about. If you're, if you're in a leadership position today and you're a CISO or, or CTA, CTO or CIO, this is this is a way to understand your program a little better, right? On the one hand, here's what your controls are telling you, but then can you trust the controls is the other question you have to ask, right? And so that's where continuous kind of compliance model, continuous monitoring type model, we not only monitoring what the controls are telling you, but actually monitoring the controls themselves. That's very important. And the right kind of compliance can tell you that. So that's that's the philosophy that I bring forward. That's what I like to talk about. And we're seeing a focus on that with things like the OMB Circular uh, uh, Memorandum one, uh, uh, M2131, right? That came out last year. This is calling for continuous monitoring. We're seeing a lot of that. That's kind of a common theme that's emerging across many different regulatory frameworks. They want continuous monitoring, right? They want to know exactly where you are at any given time. And also there's a big focus on data sharing, right? You're seeing a lot of, you know, there's a billion dollars that's just been allocated to cybersecurity by the White House. There's more and more, uh, there, there are more moves in this space to really create better visibility, better observability, and to really cross and like close that chasm between private and public. We want good good partnerships. We want good relationships. We want we want it not to be a single, you know, kind of a unidirectional thing where you send the data to government and you never get anything back. We want a collaborative relationship. And we've been calling that for decades, right? And now I think we're in a space where the regulations are starting to reflect the desire of the federal government and the law enforcement community and the intelligence community to really collaborate with the private space, the, the private industry, because a lot of the innovation is coming out from the private industry, a lot of capabilities in the private industry. And also 85% of a critical national infrastructure is in private hands. It's not in government hands, right? right? You know, you've right. got the Los Alamos laboratories, and then you've got, you know, all the nuclear reactors that are actually owned by, by a private entity, right? So there, there's that split. And so you have to rely on the private industry, but you have to create that medium for exchanging that information. And that continuous monitoring model, that's exactly what the regulators are asking for. So I think if, you, if you're looking, if you own a program, that's the thing to think about. How much of my of what I see is continuous? How much of what I see is true? How much of what I see is actually fact and not opinion? And and these are kind of big fuzzy questions, and they can be scary to ask, and they be even scary to answer. But I think that's something that folks need to approach with a lot of credibility. Absolutely. All right. Well, I wanted to uh, thank you for taking the time. I think it was a great great conversation. Uh, very interesting. I, yeah, I, I, 
you know, definitely could have you back. We, I'm sure we could go in another hour. We can, we can talk about uh, FTX as a false flag and make, <laughs> make, a, make a whole podcast out of that. Um, but uh, yeah, that, 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 thank you for uh, taking the time. Well, Tony, thanks for having me on and I appreciate the time. Thank you. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts. 